everyone. Welcome to the Lessons We Can Take From Today podcast, where we interview professionals and we try to extract life lessons from them. Today, I have a very special guest, one that I hold close to my heart, James Broskell. Um, our friendship began when he was my French tutor senior year, and little did both of us know we'd become really, really good friends from that point on. James is more than just one of my best friends. He is a student senator, a dining committee chairman at Brandeis, a substitute teacher at the young age of 20, an avid dog, an avid dog lover, <laughs> and the oldest of five children. Thank you for being here with me, James. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. And I'm very, very excited that you have decided to have me on. Yeah. From one to 10, what would you say? Right now, uh, definitely a 10. 10? 10 yeah. out of 10? All right. So my first question is I really wanted to start off with is, so growing up, I would say you've always kind of been a leader, you know, with coaching, tutoring, and mentoring, and, you know, being the oldest of five, how would you personally describe your leadership style if you had to? That is a very good question. I think that the most important dimension to leadership that I've learned this year is consensus because when you have a united front of people pursuing the same goal as you, working in tandem with you rather than feeling as though they've been ignored, you are much more able to achieve goals because the dynamics within your team are most conductive to collaborative work. You don't have to worry about people's morale or anything because by including their ideas and their inputs and their actions in the leadership process, they feel heard and they feel invested in what they're doing as much as you do. Yeah. I think we actually, I remember when we took a personality quiz for leadership and work style, yours was collaborator. Yes. <laughs> so it, it ties in naturally with what you just said. Um, so, you know, you're working with kids extensively now as a substitute teacher and you have at Springsbrook and you always told me how rewarding it is. Um, why do you like working with children and how is it going? How has it been going back to your old elementary school as a substitute? Well, I'm going to answer those questions in reverse order, actually. Reverse? Okay. Because going back to Davis school, um, where I spent kindergarten, first and second grade was a very interesting experience at first because I walked in there last spring and I hadn't been there in a very long time. And to see that some of the same adults were in that building as there was when I was there, seeing how many different ones there was, seeing how uh, similar some things looked, but also how different some things looked. It was all in all just a really incredible experience. I particularly enjoy working with kids because I think it's a really uh, useful and crucial way of preparing mm. the next generation of adults and leaders for all kinds of life's challenges and to you know, do amazing things once they're older. Mm -hmm. And I particularly enjoy getting to meet so many new kids and adults now because the school is just full of people that I otherwise would not get to meet. And I think it's really awesome to get to go in there and do good work and meet all kinds of new people. And all in all, you know, keep busy in a way that is otherwise hard to do when you're home from college and you don't really have any other obligations. Yeah. So basically, for people who don't know, so when you're substituting, um, what is the first, what do you normally do with them? Like what, what is sure. the, yeah. Sure. So stepping into the room, for me, step by step. <laughs> so for me as a substitute, a day in my life is uh, a little different than it is for a teacher who's like on staff at a school like Davis. So I go into the office in the morning and I am told what it is I'm going to do for that particular day. So the assignment does change day to day. Of course, I am a per day substitute. And um, 
So it really depends. So I'll go to office, sign in, get my assignment, and then I will go off to wherever it is I've been told to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, check in with the teachers there, talk through uh, what's expected of me and what they want to see, what I should know about maybe the kids I'm working with, and then the kids arrive and we get right to it. Yeah. It's kind of good, though, it's per day, because then you're always you're substituting for different rooms, so it's a kind of nice change of pace. You get to know different kids. Yes, so I've gotten to meet a whole different cast of people because where I go, you know, Tuesday is different than Wednesday, and so I meet twice the people that I would if I yeah. stayed in the same place. Exactly. Some of them were telling me yesterday, actually, when I was at work. They're like, oh, my God, we, I saw one of your friends because I used to have you as my phone background. I was like, oh, who, James? They're like, they're like, can you call him? I was like, I think he's at work right now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it was adorable. Um, and the fact kids are a lot smarter than people think they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. They put things together. They're always very observant. And it's very nice to hear stories like that when you learn that the work you've been doing had a positive like experience for your kid. So. Yeah. And then I also always believe it's like a very cliche phrase, but that it takes a village to raise a child. And, you know, like, um, when children have good, like coaches or mentors or good figures around them, I think it really helps a, a child develop, um, So, I don't know. I think it's kind of nice having that for them. Yes, undoubtedly it takes a village. Yeah. Um, So, you've you've been in Bedford for a while. What are some things, you know, growing up here, do you remember the most fondly? Now, we touched a little bit about this last one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, what Fahad is in this case referring to is the question of what was my favorite place in Bedford. Yeah. And I answered... Quite quickly, Page Field, because as a lover of baseball um, and somebody who always wanted to practice, I would just go there and relax and focus on what I wanted to improve and have a great time. So that's definitely one of the things that I've really appreciated about this is the availability of places like Page and others to go and do sports if you so choose. I remember that the playground was built when we were like entering kindergarten. So it was like this new thing. And I would go there all the time with my parents and my little siblings. The library by far, because I spent a ton of time there, especially during the summer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Fahad, the library man. (laughs) I would say that it's been really cool to watch Bedford develop the way that it has. The town definitely is different than the one that I first walked into when I was a small child. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's more positive than it is negative by far. I think that this town has a lot to offer and is all in all a really cool place. It's nice to be able now as an adult to have more opportunities to do things in this town, like getting to work here when I'm home and all the rest because I get to meet more people than I did when I was small. I get to learn more about the history of this town than I did when I was younger. I get to... Just do more things. And I think that life is about doing more things and exploring and just trying stuff that is different and maybe you otherwise wouldn't get to do because taking opportunities is important. Yeah. Well, because you're kind of like a historical wizard. Do you remember during Bedford Day where we were looking at the new museum they have for Bedford and we're looking through the maps and everything? I think that was kind of like a really rewarding experience because growing up, you don't really think Bedford's that interesting and then you learn all these cool things. Yes, yes. So going through the Bedford Historical Society was a really cool experience. I remember we were looking at the um, diagram they had in front of us of that stretch of the Battle Road and I realized that I actually recognized it from when I had gone running there a couple of times. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. You were my GPS. I was like, what is this? What is this? Yes. And I would say that the other really cool part of that particular experience was seeing the thing about 
how there is a paint mine in the area that is now covered by Hanscom Field. Mm. And so there was this particular mineral that led to there being this yellow color that was used for a lot of houses in Bedford back in the day. And so I just thought that was really cool to explain like why some of these old houses had this color that I recognized. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a really cool story as well. Ultimately, the mine ended up getting raised so that Hanscom Field could be built and you know Bedford could become a part of the important neighboring Hanscom community. But I just thought all in all that entire story was so cool. And that's why I enjoyed walking through uh, the historical society with you so much back then. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, even I remember, I didn't even recently knew that Bedford had the oldest flag. It's so like, I don't know, just really opens up your perspective. Um, so something that I feel like you have really a knack for and a great ability is um, storytelling and I remember I saw that firsthand when you created the segment called This Day in History, where you recounted historical events, but kind of in a funny, lighthearted manner, you know, making it appealing to high school students. And, you know, uh, you were in an article for the Bedford Citizen a few years back um, about a local, a local election. And even recently, I know I always bring up that video that you did for the dining committee. That was, I think you really presented and spoke really well. Um, so what draws you into storytelling and... Um, what was doing, you know, that BHS now and doing these experiences taught you about yourself? What I've by far learned the most is that storytelling is a very effective means of communication because it allows you to synthesize information in a way that is most entertaining and interesting to viewers. If you have an infographic or a news article or some other type of media, it, it's good and it's good to have. But if you're telling someone a story, I think that it's just presented in a way that's a little bit different than the other ways and people find it more appealing. So I like storytelling because it is an opportunity to frame things in a way that people can understand. I think that's one of its biggest assets. And that's why I really enjoyed doing school news back in 2021 because you had stuff like this day in history, but also for all of the other stuff that we put forward for our production, we got to tell the story and we got to say it in a way that was something that students could hear and relate to and care about and want to watch, which is why ultimately it had the success that it did at the time, because it felt like it mattered to people. The same thing goes for the video I put out about my work in student union, talking about, you know, what my job was going to entail, what my goals for the semester were and all the rest. It was able to break down into understandable, accessible terms what was going on, what was going to happen, and what had already happened. And I think that that's the best asset that storytelling has. Plus, when you're telling a story, you can always mix in you know, some lightheartedness in a human dimension to it that makes it feel more real than something that's a little bit more detached. Yeah. Well, also, when you did the school news, we both did it during our um, senior year, for you as well, correct? Yes. Yeah. So how was it kind of like stepping into something completely foreign? Because you've never done uh, the news before. Right. Yeah, like, what advice would you give to people who are trying something out new and different, and, they f- and they're trying to kind of learn the ropes? Because you did it pretty reasonably well, and it was your first time doing it. Right, so I would say, like, here's a great lesson you can take from today. <laughs> yeah. I spoke to this a couple of minutes ago, but I think that life is about picking out things that are different, that are new, and just trying them, because mm-hmm. they look fun, they look cool, and why not? It's great to try new things, it's great to try things you're interested in. It's great to put yourself out there if you want to do something because you deserve it. 
That's what my opinion is. And so the specifics of something like the news where I, we worked on um, like making sure there's good audio quality, what good video looks like, mm -hmm. um, just overall having something that is complete and something that is usable for the productions that we put out. Yeah, and understanding the audience, right. I would say, yeah. And once you get a feel for that, you can get right into the storytelling and the human dimension to it that makes it thrive. And that's why I think it was such a great experience for, for us, for, viewer, for viewers alike. Do you think it's better to be, this is a little off topic, a master of one trade or multiple? Or a little bit to know about each different thing. What's your philosophy on that? I think I definitely favor being comfortable with multiple different things because when you have a feel for lots of things, you can work on refining them. And then when you do that, you can then have a good handle on lots of things because you have a good foundation to start from. I think that's a good answer. I feel like it's always good to diversify your knowledge because then it makes you be able to talk about multiple different topics as well as when you're meeting people. Yeah. Especially as you're going into college, you're meeting different types of people from different places. To be able to know a little bit about everything, I feel like really makes a difference. So speaking about college, what was it like leaving Bedford and going to Brandeis? And um, why did you choose to go there and not somewhere else? Going to Brandeis was a really cool experience. I had obviously spent the past year and a half or so of my pre-college time mostly in the house given the state of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. So to go from a pretty home-like environment to doing this kind of sheltered adulthood by myself was a very cool experience. I thought it was really enjoyable. I definitely learned a lot about you know, taking care of oneself a lot about myself as an individual, a lot about how other people approach interactions in life and school. So it was very informative, but also very fun. It was nice being close by. I felt as though I had the same independence that I would have had elsewhere, but that um, I also had the convenience of being able to go home or have family come to me if the need ever came up. Yeah. So I didn't feel as though I had to sacrifice independence for um, distance. Yeah. I felt very... You saw that family support net nearby yeah. than if you were going to go to Colorado. Right. And I still felt very independent close to home. So it was able to really get the best of both worlds in that regard. Brandeis academically was a very good fit because it has a very wide range of things that it offers. And I walked into Brandeis not knowing what I wanted to do. So it was really nice to go and see all of these choices that were available to me, knowing that I could choose any one or two or three of them and not have to worry about not having what I wanted to do be available to me. Yeah. Well, do you like the smaller class sizes they offered? Or that doesn't, was that a factor in choosing it or not really? Like, not really, but I definitely came to appreciate that. The intro classes were larger than the classes I was used to in high school, but still much, much smaller by the sound of it than what the intro classes are at the bigger universities. Yeah. Because I hear that's pretty crazy, and I think that the environment that Brandeis has because of small class sizes is very good. It's nice to know your classmates and know the people that you live near. Brandeis is not super, super small, but it is still a small school, so it has a community feel to it. But mm -hmm. there's still enough people that... You feel as though you can meet new folks. Um, you know, even now in the middle of year two for me, I still am very excited because I know with reasonable confidence that I'm going to get to meet lots of new people in the spring and it'll be cool. Well, I think it's also good because you're also taking a great deal of 
uh, history and political courses, and then you're also taking science and chemistry courses. Um, so what is that experience like, you know, taking such a diverse yeah. course range? Um, yeah. Yeah, so that started, it was reflective of me being an undecided student and wanting to explore the stuff that I was interested in. So like you said, I took some politics classes. I took honors general chemistry and ended up running with both because I liked both. It was very cool because the number one thing about that that I didn't quite anticipate was that I would get to meet two entirely different crowds of people, yeah. two, two entirely different um, places where I got to meet and make lots and lots of friends. Um, people from different disciplines are friends, so it's really cool to see like science friends who know humanities friends, being friends, us all hanging out together in this like really diverse setting that still Everyone turns out really is somehow nice. connected. Yes, <laughs> it is. And that comes despite Brandeis being like a very diverse student body, lots of Jewish people, lots of Muslims, lots of Christians, lots of internationals. We really do have everything on campus. And I am fortunate that I get to be friends with people from more backgrounds than I can keep track of. And I think that's like the best part about going to Brandeis is that it is so diverse that you can meet and learn from virtually any culture. It's right. incredible. That's great. What would you say for each major is your favorite and least favorite class? We'll start with <laughs> science first. Right. So, yeah. Be brutally honest. <laughs> well, so right. So right now I'm in organic chemistry and it's just difficult. That's just like a walk it's in a, a difficult park, right? class. It's amazing. Right. Um, <laughs> I have great company in that class. I'm in it with a lot of honors chem classmates from last year. I do appreciate what it does and what it teaches. It might be my least favorite just because of how difficult it can get at times and the implications that that has had for my sleep schedule over the course of the fall semester. Um, the life of an academic weapon. <laughs> uh, my yeah. favorite chemistry major class hasn't happened yet. I look at the advanced chemistry classes that are ahead, and I think they all look really cool, and I think that my favorite class is going to end up being one of those better days ahead. So Yeah. How about with the political? Yeah, my favorite politics class has been this one I took the past semester on the politics of Russia and the post-communist world. The professor's super funny and um, very, very knowledgeable. So it made for a really great combination. The lectures were fun, very engaging, laced with some good old humor to put things into perspective in a way what that was informative. What is your favorite quote from the professor? Uh, I don't know if I have a specific one in mind, but often when talking about um, just events going on, he'll say, the Kremlin says dot, 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 <laughs> and then he'll phrase it in terms of like what the line from there is. And to Americans, that may sound funny because of just the how, wit of how with all. Western media, the way we kind of see around what may be coming out of there and the way it looks. And because it's a bigger class, it was supposed to be a small class um, that was like discussion based, but in light of the events in February, everyone kind of signed up for it because they thought it was interesting because yeah. registration took place after. How many people around? At least 20. Oh. So it's like a good crowd, ready to have a good talk, ready to listen, but also ready to have a good laugh. So it made for a really nice group. Yeah, that's around the sizes we have for uh, digital media and English classes, because those are discussion bases, 17 to 20, but you guys are much smaller, so. It feels bigger for yeah, us. Yeah, it feels bigger, it feels yeah. Bigger for us, absolutely. How about your science classes? What's the biggest? Because those at UMass will have a lot of, right. yeah. Oh, so, OCHEM is definitely the biggest I've had so far. It's 
between one and two hundred. It started. Oh, it started okay. above two hundred because in August everyone wanted to have a look at what the class was all about, and after the first month or two, a lot of people did drop. But even after the drops took place, we still had a lot of people. So that's definitely the biggest class. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're talking about you know politics, as we were talking about earlier. Um, me and you are both part of, you know, the student government crew in our colleges. Um, what has that experience been like for you and how did you get involved? And yeah, what's the story behind that? Right. So when I walked into college in August of 2021, I wasn't really looking at that stuff because I was so focused on making friends and just making sure I had connections and setting up that important part of the college experience. Yeah. Just trying to figure out what my new life was. There ended up being special elections for student union in the early spring semester in January, February of 2022. And I had ended up meeting Peyton, my friend who has also appeared on this podcast at that time. And I was talking with him about the vacancy for the Senate seat for my residential quad last year. And I said to him, uh, given that he was a Senator at the time, do you think that I should run? Do you think this would be something that would be good? Because I was curious to know more about what that was all about. And he said, absolutely. And he gave me a rundown as to what the role was like. And he said, I think you'll really like it. And so I ended up um, declaring my candidacy, running unopposed ultimately at the time, and um, walking into Student Union Senate last year. And I really liked it. I thought it was good work. I had a good time even though we met on Zoom in the spring semester. I was the senator for my residential quad. Peyton was for his. And it ended up being cool that the senators of the two freshman residential quads on campus were like friends. It was kind of a cool little thing. And I ended up running for Senate again this academic year. I am a class of 2025 senator now. Uh, Senate meets in person now. It's even more engaging and fun than it already was. I think it's... That on-person report just is different. It is. The senators... No one's scrolling through Instagram. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. Senators are all very engaged, and we all are much more connected to each other. I've gotten to meet a lot of senators that served in the Senate last year that I didn't get to connect with last year, but got to connect with this year, which is really cool. So I've gotten to meet a lot more new people because the in-person aspect has allowed me to make a lot more connections, which is great. And so looking ahead, we've got a big spring semester coming up. Having done lots of work in dining as dining committee chairman, there's a ton of exciting changes coming up to the dining experience on top of the ones that have taken place already. And it's just nice to know that Coming back to campus in January, we can get right to it and keep on going with this much more cohesive student union that we have set up courtesy of in-person connections. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, pain because that was one of my questions coming up. Um, so I think as anyone who follows your Instagram can see that you and uh, student union president Payne, hello if you're listening, um, have a close friendship. And you mentioned how it began. Um, so to a lot of people, you know, this is something that a lot of people struggle with is they're working with their friends, whether that be at a restaurant or in student government. Um, um, is it hard sometimes to work alongside a close friend? And how do you guys like balance working together, but then also, you know, leaving work at work? Yeah. So last year, Peyton and I were both senators and we were on different committees and stuff. So we would sometimes attend Zoom meetings together, which was cute. And <laughs> um, work didn't really get into our personal life last year. And then this year, I've been a senator, he's been president, so we've just kind of been working in different places, all under the same banner of student union, so sometimes he presents stuff to the Senate, but all in all, our work is in different places, so we don't really have that issue this year. That's good. 
So it's kind of just like... We're each doing our own thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like my friends who work at Starbucks. They say like they like to befriend people who work at other ones because they're all just doing very different things. <laughs> um, what would you say has been your top three favorite moments in student government? Top three favorite moments in student government. Yeah. Let's see. So I ended up this past semester helping to orchestrate the setup of a committee consisting of myself as dining chair, our director of residential life, which is in Peyton's cabinet, and a bunch of staff from Harvest Table, which is the food vendor for Brandeis' campus. So we had their sustainability rep, we had the director of hospitality, we had the executive director of hospitality, we had the supervisors of both dining halls, you name it. So it's a place where we got to have direct conversation between us uh, as union folks, the whole trench of Harvest Table staff in addition to other um, like student groups. And so to have that kind of forum finally in place and now ready to be used again next semester was great because we got to talk about all the stuff that students had been wanting to discuss and also hear directly from Harvest Table themselves about you know the plan changes to dining and like what's going on on their side with their own initiatives. So it was just a very good place to synthesize all of that information into one place and be able to best communicate mm -hmm. with the students who are wondering, like, what's going on with dining? Are there changes being made? And is there a way for me to voice my concerns courtesy of the conduits that the student leaders are? What are the other two? Or would you say that would be the top? That's definitely the top, yeah. The yeah. other two, I think, would be... Uh, they can just be moments. Sure. <laughs> um, one of the Senate's big responsibilities is chartering clubs and like recognizing them so that they can get um, funding from the university. So provided that the clubs fit all the criteria for being a recognized club and they follow all the rules, they're allowed to then, with the Senate's approval, make that next step to being like a club that you see on campus. Basically, that's the simple version of the process. And so getting to vote to um, put those clubs into existence is really nice because you get to learn about what's going on on campus. You also get to see like how happy the club leaders are having set time out of their day to go and talk to the Senate about what they are and presenting about themselves. So after that, to see them smile and be like, awesome, thanks, like so excited to get to it is really nice. And then if I had to pick a third thing, it would be just um, sitting in the student union office now and again because sometimes members will go to just do work or relax there yeah so you know be it Peyton be it fellow senators be it members of other branches of student union getting to just relax and enjoy themselves together is something that I've really come to enjoy this year now that uh, in a more in-person school year people are actually congregating in the student union office more than they used to yeah it's kind of like when we were doing peer leadership and then we met in person <laughs> it was much different than when it was on zoom because you're just talking and communicating with people um so something that I found, you know, remarkably impressive when I was looking through um, your dining committee account is how much you guys have achieved in only in a first semester. So such as expanding to five, 75, uh, five, 75 kosher items, you know, added to the dining hall. And something I'm super jealous of is the slushy and smoothie machines are set to be introduced in the spring semester. Um, even from a health safety standpoint, um, ensuring that sesame will be labeled within the food, which is pretty important because it's a common allergy. Um, so what is the secret to having this great level of efficiency within a semester? Step one is persistence and maintaining communication even when the P 
people you're talking to might not seem the most responsive because we definitely had periods where we felt as though um, students and student union officers were not being listened to to the level that they should. But we continued to just send Persist. emails and like let them know that like this was going on and that we were standing by for setting up things like the bigger committee that ended up coming into existence that I talked about. Um, having a clear idea of what you want and how the change can best be achieved is great because it means rather than requesting a change without any kind of instructions, you can do a much better job and say, here's what we'd like to change, here's why we'd like it changed, and here's some ways we envision that change could be made. Because then it's a much more specific, much more straightforward way that um, the vendor can take our feedback and actually act on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if it's reasoned out and has clear instructions for how you can do it. It's not really possible for them to say, oh, we can't do this, sorry, because well, the ways of doing it are laid out in front of them. And you can't really say that they don't exist when they are, in fact, before yeah. your eyes. Uh, and I also say that having, I guess, good collaboration between student leaders when it comes to this kind of work is good because... If we can come together, coordinate what it is we're going to ask, say the same thing, bounce ideas off each other, then we put forward like a whole trench of ideas that are very reasoned, very well like oiled out, and much more informed than if it's just one, one person. person and then another and then another lining up and tossing things their way. So the collaborative style, which we talked about earlier, is very, very useful, especially in this line of work. Yeah. It's only been some time, but what would you say to yourself before entering that position? Is there some lessons or mistakes or things you learned from this experience? Don't be afraid to ask for things. Because more often than not, they're good ideas, the changes that myself and the other student leaders have asked for, and they're ones that are at least in principle agreed with by Harvest Table, and that uh, if they say, no, sorry, we can't do that, then you're not in trouble. It's not the end of the world. Um, so you just got to keep yeah. trying to find the things that are, in fact, within the realm of possibility and keep putting them forward. And the worst thing they can say is no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it like that, but that is the idea. Yeah. Yes. And so having that kind of mindset's good because it allows you to best um, communicate your ideas without feeling as though you've gone through a meeting without putting forward the fullest extent of solutions that you might have worked out in your mind. That's amazing advice. You're light years ahead. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's the year of 2023, and this is the month of resolutions. So do you have any? Um, one for work as a senator, one for something else at school, and just, you know, life in general. Yes. N Yes, yes, yes. I spent a lot of time before the new year thinking about how I wanted to do things differently in 2023. 2022 is the type of year where I feel like I learned a lot about myself and what mattered to me and what I wanted, just who I wanted to be. So a lot of my stuff is a little bit simple in terms of like self-care and as a college student trying to something like a more balanced sleep schedule and you know, good eating habits and all the rest to continue to do things like attend classes and not skip because I 
do not skip classes and I want to, you know, A, get my money's worth, but B, ensure that I'm, you know, most prepared. So stuff like that. Also, the classic college ambitions of being more social, connecting with more people, just doing more interpersonal things than I did this past semester because it definitely got busy at times and that was difficult. But to persist with that even during periods that are more hectic is one of my one of my goals for 2023. Also, um, in terms of work, just to continue to put forward ideas and to not be afraid of an idea being turned down because once you get into being afraid of an idea being turned down, you're beginning to limit yourself. And when you're in a line of work that is about finding solutions, being self-limiting is not helpful to your cause. Uh, let's see, what else do I have? For 2023, also just like healthy habits and exercise and always trying to find time to just be active, to move, uh, and potentially to do that in the company of others because it can be a great social activity as well. So yeah, a couple different things, but just trying to live the most happy and healthy and engaged lifestyle as possible next year, this year. All great. Do you set goals differently on depending on what the objective is, like whether it's like a fitness or academic or self-improvement? Um, I think that the like outcome that I target is not changed depending on what type of goal it is. I think that the means of getting there is different. I think that what I say to myself to motivate myself or um, like plan out my actions depends on what it is. Like how I convince myself and motivate myself to exercise is different than that for going to class or going out and seeing people. I do mm -hmm. think that that's a little different in the general sense. It's difficult to maybe put a finger on what specifically it is. But yes, I would say the ultimate goal, though, is to be you know ambitious, to be decisive, to show strength with all of the different types of goals, nonetheless. Um, so, you know, when people are setting goals sometimes, people sometimes can get carried away and aim a little bit too high or too low. Um, so how are you able to set them where they're ambitious, but at the same time realistic? And do you ever find yourself getting carried away? Like, do you know how, I, th I don't know if you've seen these videos where people are like, how to get a six pack in one month, like these things that are absurd or right, like right. study for 30 minutes and get an A, like just things that are a little, how do you kind of keep them grounded? Step one is not honestly like for me the best thing i can do for that is to not worry too much about is this being too ambitious because once you start thinking about that then it's very easy to just throw that label at any goal that you set that doesn't seem readily attainable i think once you do a little bit you have a feel for what your limits are and what a good target is i think that having the ultimate goal being self-betterment and self-improvement is the best way to do it because with something like running I mean, I'm not in high school anymore. I'm not running at a fixed time every day with this, you know, cultivated set of workouts and guaranteed time to do it. It's definitely more difficult in college. But the goal is to do it as much as possible to when I exercise to push myself and to just improve and better my own speed or strength or whatever the physical exercise in question is. So when you set goals for improvement and not trying to compare yourself to others, but to compare yourself to yourself, it 
neatly prevents your goals from being too ambitious because the goal is just to end up in a better position than where you started. And then once you've improved it one time, to end up in a better position than your new best and then a better position position than that best. Yeah. And so you just get further and further along if you take your own advice and you follow your own instructions and you continue to show the discipline that gets you from one improvement and one yeah. personal best. Because you next. see someone very far along and they've reached it, but then you don't know all it took to get to get there. Exactly, right. Like yeah. everyone had to start at some place and once you get started, that's the hardest part by far. Yeah. It gets easier as it goes on. Once you and your body like learn how to push yourself and how to persist like that. Some improvement is better than no improvement. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, when you're like, let's say the goal is running or academics or anything is the beginning is always the best and the end is so rewarding, but you know, the middle is usually, you know, it's called uh, a YouTuber I watch called Sean calls it the sticky middle. It is. How do you kind of push through? Like, do you have a story or anything about it? Like, well, I, before I begin, yeah. you know that the, the very last, the very last stretch is the easiest because yeah. the finish line is in sight, be it literally or figuratively, you know, you're going to be done. Once you're there, you're done. Mm -hmm. It's the penultimate stretch, especially where you are just, Burning, I love that phrase. Right? <laughs> so that's the part where you just want to kind of stop, curl up, and be done. It's, you need to tell yourself, at the beginning of the race, I knew this stretch would come. At the beginning of the semester, I knew this stretch would come. I need to, no matter how terrible it may feel, how tiring it may be, push through the next week or two of classes, the next two minutes of this race, grind it out because once that's done if i can hold the line here it's a sprint to the finish line from there on out so you need to just be mentally prepared for that period to appear because you know it will and have a plan for how you're just gonna push Power through it through. with all you've got because once that's done you're done you'll get through the last stretch that's not the issue the issue is getting to the last jump the last little piece of time before the it's kind of good just not going into it ignorant, knowing that. Right. So have a plan. That's a very useful, like a short answer to your question, to have a plan, to have thought out where the potential adversity will appear and how you're going to best confront it. Wow. Beautifully said. I'm definitely going to steal that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking. Um, so oftentimes, though, we may do all of those things and we work really hard at it. We do everything that we do and then we still end up failing. Um, how have you handled fail failure in the past and what advice would you give to other people to kind of overcome it and have resilience? Right. So sometimes in life you can do all the things right, or you can do none of the things wrong, depending on how you choose to look at it and still not succeed. Such is life. Um, but if you are able to get back up after that type of moment and then continue persisting nonetheless, then that is an entirely new dimension of strength and resilience that you've unlocked. If you do everything right, you push yourself, you get past that tough stretch in the race or semester, depending on whether this is a physical or academic exercise you're doing, and it doesn't work, but you come back the next time around and you do that again, and you, you know, break through that time, that's not some kind of dumb luck. That is born from experience 
persistence and an elite level of mental toughness that you have gotten yourself courtesy of not quitting. All right. Yeah. So kind of what you're saying is that when you achieve it, it's going to be more rewarding after you've kind of... Yes. And you're a much better position to continue succeeding, right? If you fail once, twice, three times, and then succeed after that, you're much better set up for future success than if you just only try when you think you're going to succeed. Succeed maybe once in a while, but you're too afraid to not... You're too afraid to try in the meantime. Yeah. Um, you know, something that I've always admired about you, and you know what motivates me, um, is your dedication to staying in shape. I remember last summer... Uh, one day you swam, correct me if I'm wrong, was like 30 laps as part of your lifeguard training. And then you went out and then pitched a complete game for your baseball. Um, how do you keep that drive pushing and what advice would you give for wanting that level of dedication? He doesn't brag about it. I do for him. <laughs> I literally will right. commend so, him for it every time. <laughs> oh, oh, goodness. <laughs> He's very humble about it. <laughs> so for context here, um, I lifeguarded at Springsbrook Park, the uh, town pool in Bedford this past summer, and lifeguards are obligated to do 30 laps for the summer as part of their um, contractual obligation. And I didn't really have a lot of time before or after work during the summer to do it because I would have to go to baseball or to other stuff. And so there was this one day where I got off of work early because the park was empty and I swam. And I did 27 laps out of the 30. I was going to finish the 30, but then I was told by my mother, James, you have a baseball game tonight and you're pitching. You need to stop. And <laughs> mom was completely right about this one, for the record, people. Um, Elizabeth I made the right call. <laughs> I really, really, really didn't want to have to worry about finishing my requirement because I didn't know if or when I would get the opportunity to do it again. And so I was definitely tired. My arms and legs felt pretty heavy when I was uh, walking out of the pool. And I was wondering about um, just the game later. And I knew that if I had exhausted myself to the point that I wouldn't succeed that night, that it would have been my own fault because of what I had done. And so from then on, I was very, very, very motivated to succeed that night because I had to prove to, you know, the people who watched me do this unwise thing and to myself that uh, I could redeem myself despite um, having done the laps. And it ended up being that, like Fahad said, I pitched a complete game. I was there. And the team won. Yes, Fahad was there. And uh, um, I did it. That setback was your setup for success. I would, Boom. <laughs> I, would, I would not recommend doing that uh, every time before you pitch. It's better to rest your body and to um, save your strength. And I would also say that game uh, in particular did not get off to the best of starts for me on the mound, but I turned it around and ended up having a strong finish to the game that set up the team to come from behind and to win. And I think that even within this episode of persistence, there was resilience even within the game itself that I think goes to show the importance of just staying calm and not worrying about failure, even if it's a possibility, because success is a possibility as well if you bear down and you grind it out. Yeah, and I remember when I was sitting there, I was I haven't ever watched baseball before. That was my first game. And I was like, oh my God, he's doing great. But 
this old man came and he was like talking to me and he was like that guy he's a oh he's a machine he's like a superstar and i was like yeah he is and he's like a baseball expert so then i was like see and he was just watching and the whole time he was like oh my god He's doing great. <laughs> I would also say that that game was the last game that my team played before a week and a half or so breaks surrounding the 4th of July. So during that period, after that game and after that day, I took good care to physically maintain and rest myself, to take good care of myself and not burn out. Yeah. That is the important flip side of this coin. It is. Yeah. When you have these intense periods, they need to be complemented with periods and of And kind rest. of learning when... To say no as well. Yes. Like if when you have an exam or when you have something, you know, all right, I need to do this. I need to be focused on this. But that's like something you kind of have to learn when you get older. You go to college and you have all these opportunities. Is it ever hard for you to say no? At the beginning, when I was really trying to make friends and do as much social stuff as possible, it was a little more difficult. But the really incredible thing about Brandeis is that, um, especially for something like honors chemistry, where a lot of my friends ended up being... We would spend a lot of time in the lounge, right? We had a foosball table and we had an incredible amount of fun with it and also just sitting around, you know, mm-hmm. having a good time. We would do that, but kind of by agreement, we would all get up and go to our rooms, go to the library, go wherever, and just work for a couple of hours yeah. and then float back into the lounge. So we had this way of breaking things up and working really hard and then coming back and enjoying ourselves again because people at Brandeis are just really disciplined when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think Peyton had a really good quote where it was like college is about two things. Half of it is what you learn in college. And then the other half is the people you surround yourself with. Yes. And I think it's very true because you can kind of get into the habit of being friends with maybe people who aren't as ambitious as you because it's like you don't have that competing factor. But when you are friends with people who are going to push you, who are just as successful, it kind of motivates you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, as we were talking about working out and getting in shape, um, would you say when you're working out, are you a music listener, a podcast guy, or a mixture of both? It's a very serious question. <laughs> a mixture of both. A mixture of both? Yeah. All right. What are your... List out some. List, list, yeah. list out some. Um, I'm trying to find like very high energy stuff when I'm exercising because I need to, you know, be getting the energy going through me to exactly. So shout out to like Sandstorm by Darude, right? It's like a classic. It is high energy. It's great. I've been listening to it since my cross country days because the captains would play it on the speaker in high school. Uh, And then when I'm not listening to that kind of music, I'm listening to lessons we can take from today. Got that in my earbuds when I'm trying to lift. So, a bit of both. A bit of both. Thank you. Um, what was your Spotify rap playlist like? Uh, my number one listen to song was Sweet But Psycho by Ava Max. All right. And the, listening to that peaked uh, in June. Uh, Spotify also doesn't do justice to how many times I listened to that song because it says you listen to the song X number of times, and that's great. But that doesn't account for the amount of times I would listen to it on YouTube because I didn't want to wait for it to appear in my playlist. Yeah, I <laughs> so get that. It's it's a microcosm of how much I listen to it. And then Especially the, if you watch the music, if, so, if a song has a really good music video and you're watching that, it doesn't... Yeah. yeah. I'm more of a lyric video guy. I just put the phone in my pocket and like go wash the dishes, take the dog for a walk. But that is definitely true. And the, beyond that, it was like a little bit of Spanish music and 
Dustin Lynch, who's a country artist. Good priority. Um, so, as anyone knows from your Instagram and how much you talk about Aspen <laughs> to all our potential dog and cat owners this year, um, you have a great bond with your dog and she's well-trained. Um, what is the story behind your dog, Aspen, and what advice would you give to new dog owners? So the story of Aspen, um, we applied for a dog before COVID actually, and it didn't end up working out. It fell through in March of 2020. And then we applied again eventually, but we had a lot of competition because that was during the COVID dogs period of people who, after the pandemic hit, decided to put the time into getting dogs. So we were a little unsure if we'd get one because there was a lot more demand. But we ended up hearing in late April of 2020 about um, we can go to New York or I guess New Jersey right outside of New York to go get the dog in like a day. And it was a bit of short notice, but we had no shortage of time back then. And so uh, my brother and my dad were dispatched to go pick her up. In the post 1 a.m. hours of April 30th, 2020, she arrived home. We gave her a bath in the sink, of which there is a really sweet little picture. And uh, like did the taking care of her, I could not believe that there was like a puppy in my house. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. She was so cute. <laughs> and um, then we got right to training. We had time to do it. And we set aside a lot of time to having each person in our family give commands so that she'd listen to all of us. And my advice would be in the early days, like really spend the time like drilling and training commands because it's a lot of work. Puppies are a lot of work, but best that you put a ton of work in for the first couple months, the first year, because then you won't spend the entirety of the dog's life having to wrangle for... Who um, thought of the name Aspen? That was an idea of my parents. Oh. After the tree. Oh, that's the meaning behind it. Yeah. Um, so to end it off, um, the title of the podcast is Lessons We Can Take From Today. What is the greatest lesson you've learned this past year and revolving around anything? Um, so there's this saying that come the passage of time, you will not remember the words that people said, but you'll remember the way that you made, that they made you feel, right? And so the important implication of that is be mindful of the way that the people around you make you feel. Not only will it be what you remember when you look back at this period, but the way that you are consistently left feeling by those you choose to surround yourself with is going to have a really formative impact on your general state of mind, how happy you are, your mental health, and all the rest. And the best thing you can do for yourself is to surround yourself with people that make you feel fulfilled, that make you feel challenged, but also rewarded, that make you feel encouraged and supported. And if you find that you have people around you that are taking away from those things, that's something that you should feel empowered to address. Beautifully said. Thank you for joining me with me today, James. And thank you to everyone who listened. And until next time. <laughs> I'm going to wait for him to do it just in case. I don't want to mess it up.
I didn't stop it yet though, just in case. <laughs>